This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am super happy to have a very popular guest on with us for the third time, Dr. Dan Shuba. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, JP and Mike. This is a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. Now, uh, let's reintroduce you because you've had a change of roles, and I do mean that with a plural sense. Tell us about where you are now because you used to be running the spine shop at Johns Hopkins. So what's going on now? Yeah. So basically about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I took over as leader of Northwell Neurosurgery, which, you know, they gave me a number of titles, but the bottom line is that it's a it's a department that spans multiple hospitals in multiple parts of the New York metro area, uh, places like uh, North Shore and LIJ or Long Island Jewish and Lenox Hill, which is the, the show that's on Netflix. And those are all hospitals that have neurosurgery departments. And my role is to kind of unite them under one service line across the entire health system, which is the largest health system in, the, in New York State and in the metro area, Northwell. Fantastic. Now, this is our mini series on MBAs. And I remember when you were going through your MBA, I was super, super jealous because my understanding is you went to Wharton uh, Business School, which is at University of Pennsylvania. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And what class were you? I was class of 21. Okay. class of, And was it a two-year program or a one-year program? Two-year program. Okay. And I'm thinking about like all the super famous graduates of Wharton Business School. I know that Wharton has regularly been ranked ranked number one in the country for business schools, along with, uh, say, Harvard or Stanford. And there are a lot of famous graduates, including Donald Trump, his daughter, Ivanka, um, uh, you know, Ron Perlman. Uh, There's there's so many folks that have graduated from Wharton that are famous um, in the American mind and in the business world that to me, it, it ranks as one of the top places that I would want to go to if I could ever get in. Um, so, so I've always been jealous. And I, I, I have to also add that uh, JP didn't know this yet, but I just got into business school. So oh, congrats. Um, yeah. congrats. So I'm probably going to start uh, in the fall. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing this online with University of South Florida. Uh, for for a lot of reasons, which I can get into later in the podcast. I don't want to chew up your time. But tell us about your journey and how you, first of all, how did you think that, okay, I'm going to go do this now? How am I going to make time for it? And then how did you decide on Wharton? Great. Thank you, Mike. Congratulations again. And I know you and I've talked offline uh, so much about this. And it's just about, you know, first and foremost, it's about continuing to learn. And so I think for me, uh, what I saw is that like many neurosurgeons, we're very achievement oriented. And uh, I'm, I'm projecting that on a lot of listeners, but I think I'm, I'm right, is that, you know, we go through college and then we do med school and we're always looking to that next uh, mountain. And then we get to the top of the mountain, we look up and there's another mountain. And, and a lot of us like that. And that's what drives us. The issue is uh, for me at, at my age that I felt like I was seeing less, uh, less opportunities for growth personally uh, by continuing the same curriculum, which had been so wonderful to me. I always tried to be uh, uh, like other people, like you, like other leaders and say, and then at some point I saw that the next phase was going to not come from necessarily a medical education or a hospital education. It was going to come from a different education, whether that be uh, more reading or a law school or a business school or a PhD or something that China shook it up. And unlike maybe law school, which would be definitely interesting for me. I would love to learn about ethics and, and laws and, and legislation. Business really 
is something that we all do. So whether you think you're, you're, you're not, I was going to say not just a doctor, but you're a doctor, we are all accountants. We're all investors. We're all entrepreneurs. We're all um, leaders. And so this is something that business really in, embodies everything we do. I just was really bad at all of them. Uh, I really had no didactic teaching and no real uh, understanding. So for me, that was the reason to go to business school. The second thing about why Wharton is that, you know, I, I thought about doing it online or something. People said, hey, Dan, you can learn accounting by taking a course online. And I kind of was like, that seems like the worst possible situation. I, I sit in my room and I do an accounting class by myself and learn how to do get debits and credits. And really, it was just like most of us do. If you commit yourself to something, uh, it is more of a sacrifice, but it also is more of a reward. And so kind of committing for two years. And I thought if I, like you said, if I could get into a business school, I would go. And then, um, and then, and then the rest is history. Such great insights, Dr. Shuba. And, and, you know, first of all, I also want to say congratulations, Dr. Wang. That's really exciting that you got into a school, you're doing a program. And I say that as someone who's a partner with you in the neurosurgery podcast, LLC. So our business is going to get stronger too. Um, but Dr. Shuba, I, I was telling you before we started recording that I was listening back to your last time on the show for our listeners. It's episode 78. And as you said, we were kind of focused on your move from Hopkins to Northwell, uh, both in space, physically moving to a new city, but also transitioning the job. And this now becomes a very interesting case study because I just reviewed all the questions we asked you at the time and so many things were still nebulous for you. We talked about how you'd split your time between clinical, academic, and administration, and you said the only constant is change in life. So I'm curious now that as we're talking about both the process of getting your MBA, what does it look like now how you're applying it? Now that you've been there almost a year to the day, like you said, what does your day-to-day -day look like now, and, and what is the job really like as you're bringing these skills to bear that you developed at Wharton? That's a great question. And, you know, the year has seemed to fly, you know, it's flown by, but, you know, now looking back, it, we've, I think we've accomplished a great deal and uh, more to come, hopefully. The, the thing that I, I think we, it's a flywheel, but I think some of the tactics have changed a little. Uh, and when I mean flywheel, I means that there's always a circle of assessment, implementation and reassessment, right? No matter what we do in life. And hopefully that is efficient. But I think the first thing that I did, and I was recommended to do this, was, was go on a listening tour. And that term is something that they use in business. I don't think we use it in medicine as much. Uh, it's becoming more of a common term, but, you know, kind of be quiet. And for me, uh, that's exceptionally challenging because I'm happy to tell, tell you my thoughts. But the issue is go around and just listen. And I think what this does is it does, it just shows you what the assets are in a situation and what the uh, challenges are. And of course, challenges can be opportunities. So uh, keeping that positive idea that there are holes. And if you take on a new role, whether it be a business more, a leadership role or a, a physician type role, that when you see a hole, uh, that's actually an opportunity for you to excel and for you to do a job. So the first step was really engagement. And that was really, I'd say half the year, half the first year was just listening to our and an engagement. After you start doing that, you start seeing patterns pick up and you start getting, of course, mandates from your leadership saying, okay, this is the big strategy. Uh, and, and they help you, they help you and you help them define the tactics. So as a physician, I might have some expertise and they might have some expertise from their vision as leading an entire health system. And the, the hope is that as a, as a, 
a more experienced doctor, you can give some clinical experience. But as a business person, you can also say, hey, listen, I know where you're coming from. You're going to want to see returns on this in the next couple quarters. Um, and I actually said to a patient the other day, and I made a, I made a mistake, uh, but I knew the person was business. But they, I said, you know, usually you follow up x-rays in three months uh, for, for some of us, you know, for some of our fusions. And I said, I'll see you next quarter. And I said that because the patient was in finance. And so my point in telling you that story is that when you start understanding some of these uh, terms, you start uh, building relationships that and things can go much more efficiently. And then finally, what I'll say is in the, in the last, you know, the last several months, uh, now you start really building programs because it's natural for us to say, uh, you know, we've got, we've got uh, a surgeon who's great. We need another surgeon who's great, just like him or her. Uh, and we'll put that person in here. And it's kind of like, you know, let's just pick, let's pick something at the supermarket. But really what I think needs to happen is you need to start engaging first, then you think about the programmatic goals, and then you recruit. So in the last four or five months, our recruiting has picked up substantially, not because I waited uh, on purpose, but because I wanted to see where the holes were and where it could be uh, added. So I think that, you know, that kind of flywheel, and then of course, when you get those people in and you build those programs, then you look again at your at your strengths and your weaknesses as, as time never stops and things keep changing. So, so that's that's great uh, advice about how you directed yourself with this new knowledge. But I want to go back to your school days because I, to me, like I'm so interested now selfishly, right? And I'm looking at the list of like notable Wharton alumni and, and I've named some of them, but the, also Alex Gorsky, who runs Johnson & Johnson, um, Elon Musk, who's in the news all the time. Sundar Pichai, who's who's running Google and Alphabet, right? Mort Zuckerman, Peter Lynch, all these folks went to the same schools. You have the same degree and credentials. And at some point, there were classmates of these folks. So I'm assuming you're sitting around class with the future Elon Musk's, right, of the world. <laughs> and and right now, you're still the most famous doctor I know who's graduated from Wharton. What was that like? It, was it different because you are surrounded by folks that just saw the world and in maybe a more different way, maybe a, maybe a visionary way, maybe they had a different angle on things. They're obviously all super competitive, uh, very accomplished, uh, maybe even aggressive personalities, right? What was that like? Was it like medical school at all? No, it was actually quite different than medical school. And I, and I think um, there's two reasons for that. Uh, one is that, you know, some of these people are really accomplished. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of like, when we all start getting a little bit more accomplished, we get, you know, we, we puff our chest out, we stand a little taller, and then you get really accomplished and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool. Like, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm fine. It's almost like there's a humility that happens uh, when people decide to do this. And I, and I think you'll see this too, Mike, because you'll be there and people say, whoa, you're like a big deal surgeon. And you're like, no, I'm just a regular guy. And then you're like, but you're a big deal uh, in finance. And they'll say, no, no, I'm, I don't do what you do. And it almost becomes this humility uh, by people feeling like they're on part of a good team. That not only was true of my classmates, but you know, I got to, I've gotten to know over time, Alex Gorsi, he's been, a, he's become a friend of mine uh, who just transitioned out of CEO at J&J and now is chairman of the board. And I remember talking to him because uh, I'd known him through uh, relationships before uh, Wharton. And I said, should I consider going to Wharton? And he said something like, Dan, you'll have a great time, but make sure your wife is cool with it. You know, that's actually the most important. I'm going, wait a second. This guy runs one of the largest companies in the world. He's got 150,000 employees. And he's saying, you know, just make sure your wife's cool with this. And I thought that was another sign of humility uh, of just people saying, this is always a team sport. Your life is a team sport. And so, you know, you guys are a great team. I know your families are, 
are, are important and, and, and impactful. So as you go to business school, Mike, what I'm really excited about is you are such a magnanimous person and people always gravitate toward you because you're a humble but but very accomplished person. You're going to find that in other people and it's going to be it's going to be like a, a chain reaction. You're going to find people who are as accomplished and humble and then it just becomes a lot of fun. I see. So it's kind of like uh, Tony Stark really respects David Banner, who really admires Thor, that kind of thing, right? Everybody's at the top of their <laughs> vertical, right? Yeah. It's the Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> so so let me go back to the thing about the family, because I know that you your wife is, is, is fantastic. You have three kids, right? That's right. Um, and so here you are, you're, you're, you're taking on the full-time job as a neurosurgical professor. So you're doing all those things, right? The surgeries, the clinics, the research, the teaching, all that at Johns Hopkins, which is, is not shabby. And then you've got your family and then you take this on. Like, how did that go? How, how was that conversation? And, and was it rough? Was it hard? You know, was it tough to be studying at night and doing homework? It, it, it was and, and at times, right? Because um, I remember one situation where I was about to start a test you know, with pencil and paper, you know, and it was on economics and uh, microeconomics test, which is a hard class at Wharton. And then um, I got texted, uh, your patient is being reintubated and sent to the uh, unit. And I, it was like four minutes before they're about to say, okay, put your phones away and start the test. And I texted, I'm saying, uh, can you call so-and-so? Is everything okay? I'll be available in one hour. And, you know, that was the kind of thing where you're sitting there going, usually as doctors, everything takes priority when it's medical patients. And I, I had had to thankfully tell people there may be an hour or two when I have to do that. And after the test, I, I, uh, I went right back to Baltimore and nothing to do because I was in Philadelphia. So it was challenging at those times. And I learned from that experience to say, hey, if anything happens in the next uh, hour, uh, can someone cover me, even though I'm not on call, even though I'm not, uh, but just, you know, we always make ourselves available. In terms you're of always on call, right? Neurosurgeries. I had a conversation with a patient yesterday, an internal medicine doctor whose husband was in, and she goes, she goes, I just don't want to have you pull somebody in who's not on service. I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. We're always on service. It's it's that that's a great story, great point you're making. Yeah, no, and I've had and we've had that, I'm sure I've had that with my 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 in-laws, my sister-in-laws and brother-in-laws who are in finance or in law. And there I'll get called at, you know, during Thanksgiving dinner. And they'll say, are you on call today? I say, I'm always on call. And so that was that was one thing that, you know, when you're taking a test, you got to do it. Because back the last time we took tests, uh, we were in medical school, we didn't, we weren't on call. So this is a different thing that, you know, Mike, you might want to just think about always having someone uh, to take you on those, you know, those times when you say, listen, I got to be out of commission for, for an hour or two. The second thing is the family thing. And I will tell you that I thought it was sarcastic because I'm definitely a sarcastic guy. And my wife, who's not, has kind of picked up some of my sarcasm. Um, she said, and, and one of my, one of my uh, older children said, uh, when we were at dinner and they were talking about something that was driving them crazy at school or work or something, and I said, well, I think you should you know, communicate to them your feelings and you should let them know this before this gets out of, out of whack and just talk to them. And my wife turned to me and she said, what? you're like better at this than you used to be. What's going on? And I said, did this in business school for tears, and I do this every day at work now as a leader. This is the kind, you know, where it used to be, uh, I had to deal with my patients and my research and whatever, and it was, for whatever lack of a better term, very uh, Dan-centric. Um, and yeah, I support the family, I support patients, but it was, let's get through the day. Uh, once you start looking at it in a different way, when you go to 
these business schools where a lot of projects are not you taking a test. They are the combination of a paper written by five or six people. And you all have to add your part and everyone cares. So you step up and you start really understanding team dynamics more just by the very fact of having to do work to get things done. And and I've actually done this at work. I've asked people who are who are disagreeing on something. I said, and they come to me each individually and say, you got to hear my side story. I said, how about this? Let's come up with an idea together. I want you guys to work on it. And when it's done or 90% done, then you come back to me and talk to me. And they're like, uh, what? Like, and, and it really kind of flips it on the script where it's like, no, no, I was trying to use my influence to get you to do my way. I go, have it, you guys, you guys are both going to be graded. Uh, I actually said this, you're both going to be graded on this, on this policy based on what you present to the rest of the group. And it kind of flips it. This is not something you were used to in medicine as much as we are in business. So this is another thing, Mike, which obviously you're going to, you're going to, it's going to be easy for you because you're such a team player, but you're going to see this go to a higher level. Oh, I'm taking notes right now. Believe me, I'm taking notes furiously. (laughs) Well, Dr. Shuba, I, I've really enjoyed these serial conversations with you, uh, hearing your progress over time, because the last time we spoke, we really got into your motivations for going to business school and you talked about how you were transitioning and where you were in your career and how you were you know, deciding to pursue these leadership roles and a leadership position within a healthcare system. So I wonder if to kind of flip that script, if you could put yourself in an advisory role and imagine a younger surgeon, maybe someone in training who has opportunity to do an MBA during residency or someone who might do an MD MBA program who comes to you and says, Dr. Shuba, you had such a plan laid out you had a clear role for this degree in your life. You sought it out, you attained it, and now you're implementing it. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm thinking about doing this, but I don't really know if it's going to fit in with my career path. What kind of questions would you ask that person? What kind of advice would you give someone who's considering going down that road about if it's right or if it's not right for what they might envision with their career? It's a great question, JP. I'll, I'll first start by saying, Everyone is different, right? We know that. And these are accomplished people. So, you know, I give them credit for knowing their path. And and I also give them uh, uh, empathy for not knowing their path. And I will tell you that my classmate at Columbia Medical School went to Columbia Business School. And I did a Howard Hughes year off and he did a business school year, whatever, a year and a half. And I remember saying back in the 90s, uh, why are you going to business school, man? Like, you don't want to be a like physician scientist? Like, I'm thinking about doing a PhD. Because back then, my view of business school uh, was to be, you know, people I knew went to business school in New York were were becoming investment bankers. And I saw that as being uh, very, very siloed. I think business school now, uh, people understand that a business degree is really just an umbrella type uh, degree or an umbrella type skill set that encompasses whatever you do. You're an artist and you want to sell your art. Well, you're an entrepreneur. You have to have uh, uh, cash flows. I mean, it is no matter what you do, it is not just banking is what I saw. So if you want to do it in training, unlike the, the version of me in the 90s, I would support it. It will be a different type of experience than, say, Mike Wang and I have, and, and uh, who is doing it later in their career. You know, I think the benefit of doing it earlier is you are in that mode of taking tests. You are in the mode of studying uh, while uh, Mike Wang and I are, are, are running, running businesses and what have you. I think that that is the benefit. Uh, we have to kind of get some rust out. And actually, you know, for, for my business school, they made us take the GMAT. And I remember talking to my admissions officer and saying, hey, I took an MCAT and I did okay. Why do I have to take this? And they said, you haven't done algebra, I'm sure. I know I do algebra. They said, you haven't done uh, calculus. I said, what? And so they said, you just got to get back in the swing of things. Um, so that's the benefit of doing early. 
the, the, the flip side is that you are um, sometimes less clear on your life goals in general. So for me, when I decided I want to do this, I was like, I feel comfortable that I can decrease you know, one day every two weeks, uh, Friday and Saturday, for, for that matter, two days, and study, and still feel like I could keep my progress in my career. So the one bit of advice I would give to someone who's younger, I'll give, I'll give this advice to both the younger and the, and the middle-aged, if you will. The, the younger person is, you might not know what you want to do, so doing so many things at once might be overwhelming. So for example, people will say, I'm finishing my residency and I'll do an MBA before I uh, start my, or, or the first or two years that I start my practice. And I often say, that might not be completely reasonable because you'll be so overwhelmed with learning how to run a clinic and uh, taking care of your patients. And like Mike said, we're always on call, but these are all new things. And then you're studying, it may actually be overwhelming. So be careful that you don't bite off more than you could chew if you're doing too much transition at once. So right at the time, so you're finishing residency might be a little risky while maybe before you graduate or a few years after. And for the middle-aged person, uh, where they might feel very comfortable saying, hey, I can take a little time off and, and do stuff and maybe I want to. It's more about the advice I've given is go to business school with some projects so that when you're there, you can actually go right back to where you are and going, okay, this was that thing that we were worried about. I actually asked the professor or one of my projects, they asked us what we wanted to write on. I wrote on this issue. I wrote on uh, the OR and how we're increasing uh, throughput. I wrote on... Uh, saving money through changing how we buy things and sell things. Uh, you know, I talked about leadership, you know, I want to deal with leadership in our department, how we show our compensation model, our promotion model. You talk to a leadership or a management professor. That does two things. One, it super engages you at, at uh, school. And number two, people who saw you go there are like, oh, this wasn't all about Dan or Mike. This was about them bringing stuff back. And those are the my, bits of advice. And of course, uh, I would be happy to ask those people questions. But really, uh, it's, are you willing to uh, do those two type things, whether you're young or older? If you're saying, hey, I just saw that people are doing it, I think it needs a little bit more uh, evaluation because it is a sacrifice. And so that may be the last question is, what are you willing to sacrifice uh, to make this up? There's no doubt I made less money uh, the years I went to Wharton because I wasn't, I took a, you know, an extra day off that I could have been earning money. In. And so that was something that I was willing to do. Now, the, the, the bottom line is you're also investing. So if you're getting an MBA uh, and you're thinking about it in terms of personal growth or, or wealth, you're likely investing just like anything into more down the road. So you have to make that conscious effort to saying, this is a cost in hopes for future benefits, either to my family, my job, or, or even your bottom line. Okay. Along those lines, Dan, so let me ask you tuition, right? So uh, I know Wharton is not inexpensive. Um, I don't know the exact figure, but I imagine it's in six figures to pay for the tuition. And a lot of the folks in business school, they're being paid by their employer, right? They work for a big corporation. They're like, why don't you go to business school? This will help your career. You have to come back after you're done, but we're going to pay for your tuition. In your case, um, how, like, how do you justify that? How do you think about that? Is it worth it? Um, you're talking about sacrifice. You're talking about lost productivity. You're talking about time. And then you got to pay the tuition also, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the issue that I'll always say, and, and I'm, um, you got, you've known me, both of you know me, uh, Mike and I've known each other for probably 20 years or longer, but I'm extremely transparent or sometimes unfortunately blunt. And that's a, a strength and a weakness, but any strength that you have, as you know, if it becomes really extreme, becomes a weakness. So you want to be transparent, but you also don't want to be offensive. So when you deal with something that might sacrifice 
not only your time, but the time of your family or the energy toward your family or toward your boss or your partners, you have to convey that there's value add for them as well. Now, you, they might see it as spin or you might see it as spin. But I think that, you know, even the fact that we said before, when I said, Mike, you might want to have someone that backs you up um, at face value, uh, that person, and all else being equal, I mean, Mike has great relationships, but all else being equal, might say, what's in it for me? Why am I, why am I covering you for an extra hour during the day, during the week? And so what you have to do is when you start, I would say, using the word negotiating with your stakeholders, and those stakeholders are your family, friends, and employers, and partners, you have to say, hey, th- what do you think about me doing this? And you know, it's going to end up with a sacrifice. How can, uh, how can I contribute to your world if I go? And they might say, whoa, you're going to share some of the things you learned? Yeah. Well, we're partners. Oh, that's going to be great. Hey, listen, part of this involves time. Hey, I got your back. That is huge if you can do that beforehand. And the same thing is applies to your boss. So your boss um, will look at you and say, sometimes we'll say, this is great if you come back and you give this thought process to our department, you're adding value. On other times, they might say, uh, you're like one of our money makers and you're spending time doing something else for yourself. How am I going to make this up? I'm going to pay you less or, uh, or what have you. And so you have to sit there and say, my hope is to add value. And the more you can communicate that, and, and of course, what I would suggest is before you communicate it, you ask them what their thoughts are because they will communicate to you. Well, listen, if you go there and you come back and you help us with this problem, that would be awesome. And then you can come back, and this is part of the art of negotiation, is you sit there and say, what, would, what can I help you with? And they say, this would be great. And I go, okay, I can do that, you know, but I need help with support from tuition. And, and sometimes there's an act, you know, in, in business school, not necessarily, I'm sorry, for business people, not necessarily doctors, when they pay, there's often a type of tit for tat. So they'll say, well, if you work for Verizon or Vanguard or Google, we want you here for five years. Because uh, when you get this degree, uh, you're going to be even more attractive to other employers and you can jump around. And that happens every industry. And they'll say, you got to stay with us. So I, I'm just saying that everything is a negotiation uh, uh, in life, whether you're talking to your kids about going to bedtime or you're talking to your spouse or your partners. So part of negotiation should be, let me tell you that I want to be part of helping your life. How can I do that? And if so, can that come back to me in the form of time, sacrifice, support, monetarily or, or uh, partnership-wise? Well, Dr. Shuba, as always, phenomenal insights and phenomenal practical advice, both for Dr. Wang and uh, everyone listening. You know, as we said before, you are one of our most popular guests, not just among the audience, but for Dr. Wang and myself. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you and have you back on the show. Thank you for coming back on the Neurosurgery Podcast, sir. Thanks to both of you. And best of luck, Mike, in business school. We'll be in touch, of course. Take care, both of you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.